is the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast, a true eye-opening experience. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jared Magazine. This is the show where I'm just a normal guy with a lazy eye. Our guest is a much cooler person with a much cooler story to tell, and that's exactly what we have for you today. Mikey Taylor is in the house, and... He's here to make sense of all the stuff going on in the finance world. We're getting a lot of things going on. We have social media telling us where to spend our money, where to invest our money, who should we invest it, what type of what type of products, what type of companies should we be throwing our monies at in the stock market. We have the government giving us the stimmy checks from Uncle Sam, and we have the easiest accessibility to get to the stock market. Kind of a recipe for disaster. So I brought on Mikey Taylor, who was a professional skateboarder for almost two decades, turned real estate investor, turned entrepreneur, turned a very successful career out of literally just uh, getting on a board and skating. But he has quite the story, and I'm super excited for you guys to hear this. A lot of great gems. I encourage you all to check out what Mikey has to say on this week's episode and really take it to heart. Financial freedom is a is a topic that gets thrown around a lot because it it can it can it sounds cool, sounds neat. It's a top button topic to talk about. But I think the way that Mikey breaks down financial freedom and having the discipline to get to financial freedom is really going to open some eyes here on this conversation. Open some good eyes. I know I only have one of them, but we're going to open both of them here. So Without further ado, please enjoy a great episode, a great interview with my new friend, Mikey Taylor. Well, everybody, we got a hot button topic on this week's podcast, so I had to bring on an expert. Mikey Taylor is an entrepreneur and the president and managing principal of Commune Capital, a private equity real estate investment firm in Los Angeles, California. Before all of that, Mikey had spent nearly two decades as a professional skateboarder. Essentially, everything this guy touches turns to gold. (laughs) He's here to help us make sense of everything going on in the finance world and spit some knowledge for this younger generation. Mikey, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here. Well, I just want to say, first off, thank you so much for coming on. I like when when this all was going on, the the whole like we'll get to all of it in a little bit, but the finance explosion of the world that's going on right now. I was like, okay, who can I get on the show to talk about this? And I've been following you for some time with your reels and your Instagram and your and your TikToks, and I was like, and it's a shot in the dark because I I've DM'd a lot of a lot of people and a lot yeah. of times it's just crickets. But you yeah. you responded right away. So I mean thank you. You know, man. you know what? I'll tell you what. I, I appreciate that. Um I I used to make it like a thing, make sure I respond to all the DMs. Uh and then they just started getting to a point where uh I have so many coming in that I am so late on them. And thankfully. I went through my, okay, I'm blocking off 20 minutes. I'm going to respond yeah. as much, much as I can. And yours popped up. I was like, boom, here we go. Boom. So there we go. Yeah, th- this, this was meant to be. Exactly. Exactly. And you got two SoCal kids here on, on to kids, but we got two SoCal men on the podcast today. So are you crazy. SoCal? I am. Well, I'm Where? originally SoCal. I'm now based out in Boston, but I, okay. I get a lot of crap. I get a lot of crap because I say it all the time on the podcast, but I am originally from Southern Orange County, California. Okay. I feel it. but so let's get right into it right because it's not every day you get to talk to someone who spent 
uh, who was a pro skateboarder at 19 and now 19 years later runs one of the most successful real estate investment firms in SoCal. So born and raised in, uh, in the Ventura County area, we'll call it. What was life like in the household growing up? And when did you really first get your love for skateboarding? Oh man. Uh, my how it was like the typical, like, you know, SoCal household, you know, um, one thing, my parents were still together. My parents are still married now. So, uh, that has become something that I think is unique. So I did have that, which was awesome. Uh, but dude, I was, I was running around like a kid, man. I was like riding bikes. Uh, I played hockey, uh, was into basketball, everything. Um, and then, you know, I was probably about seventh grade when I picked up a skateboard and one of my friends who was like the cool guy that we all looked up to, he's the one that got one first. So he got a skateboard. I wanted to fit in. And so I convinced my mom to get me a skateboard. And then it just grabbed me, man. It was like, it just became an obsession just like that. And then, you know, 25 years later, I'm still out there doing that every day. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's so funny because yeah. growing up in the same type of area in SoCal is the same way. Like, I wouldn't say we're, we grew up in the same era, like for lack of a better term, but it's still the same way of like, when the cool kid got the skateboard, everyone was into skateboarding. And that yeah. was just the one thing I could not do. I am not yeah. a coordinated individual. So anything with a ball or anything with a, like a prop, <laughs> I just yeah. couldn't do it. The only thing that I would do, and this is like, I hate that I'm about to say this, was like, I wanted to be like the skateboarder stuff. I wanted to dress like them. So what yeah. I would do, my, my parents wouldn't get me the no-show socks. So I would just fold my socks down at the toes so that you wouldn't get to see them. And like, I went to a private school. So obviously I got in trouble for it because we had to have our socks showing. But that was my way of getting into it, the skater culture of like, okay, I'm got, I got my no-shows on. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny, dude, is when, uh, when my career really took off is when a lot of people who didn't skate wanted to dress like skaters. Yeah. Because that's when like, dude, it, we started selling product to a market beyond our own. Uh, and then pro skateboarders started making a little bit more money. So right. uh, you, you were part of the, the blessing, man. So thank when, you. When I got my first pair of Etnies, I was like, I made it. I'm never yep. going to touch a board, but I made it. That's right. That's right. I love that. Thank you for that. <laughs> so you talk a little bit about it, right? You, you found the love for it when you, were, uh, when you were really young. But when would you say you got more, like you, you went to went to do it after school every single day. When would you say it was like a time where instead of doing something after school, this can be something, I got something here. Um, well, so it started when my, my parents wanted me to get a job and I didn't want to work because I like, dude, I skated all day, every day. It was like yeah. skate before school, skate right after school, have dinner, go skate in my garage. That's all I did. So, you know, you could imagine how terrified I would have been when my parents like, well, you get, you have to go get a job now. I was like, wait, what? I can't skate every day. And so that was the beginning of me trying to find a way in which I could get my parents off my back for having to work and also continue riding a skateboard. And so my solution was get companies to give me free products. So sponsor me. Right. And then, you know, if I needed money, I could just sell, you know, either use product or maybe use some of it, sell the other to get money for the kids that wanted skate stuff. And so that was the beginning of my, like, I need to make this happen. And so, uh, I basically long story short, ended up getting sponsors. It wasn't that simple. It took a lot of work and a lot of people telling me, no, 
Right. Uh, but eventually I got a board company to give me free skateboards every month. I had a shoe company, give me free shoes every month. And then my parents were like, okay, you could do this for a little longer. That was yeah. the beginning of it, you know? Yeah. So, so let's backtrack there a little bit. Cause like when you were 16, you moved to Newberry park, which is right outside of thousand Oaks in the greater Los Angeles area for yep. those who aren't familiar with the area. Right. So mm -hmm. like LA is a very big skating culture. You get to a scene now where you're, where you're more around the kids that will be going pro and that are good enough. Like what first question here though, like what do you think draws the, the skating culture to SoCal so much? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know what? I, I, I think California as a whole has just been the hub for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's a moment where it's, you know, youth culture has always seemed to be, you know, New York or LA, like fashion, it's like New York, LA, it's just always been kind of the epicenter for a lot of things. Um, and for some whatever reason, skateboarding seemed to fit into that. But it probably had something to do with surfing, because skating was kind of born mm -hmm. out of surfing, and SoCal and all the surf companies being out here. But uh yeah, I, I, you know, what's, what's interesting is when I, when we moved, um, we moved, we, I mean, dude, we lived in a little suburb that was like, kind of feels like in the middle of nowhere compared right. to LA. Right. And, and where I, where I moved, where I lived prior to moving, there was no skate scene. When we moved to Newbury Park, it just so happened, like I was surrounded by great skateboarders. And uh, it was the first time I saw people in real life doing tricks that I was seeing in the movies. It was like mm -hmm. a, what in the world? And right. if I wouldn't have moved and met those kids, I would never have been pro. They were the ones that like made me go, wait, if they could do it, maybe I can too. You know? Right. Exactly. And like, while you're there, this is where you really get introduced of the, like you said earlier, like the idea of being able to actually get paid for skating. But in mm -hmm. the late, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you don't have social media to post videos to. You don't have your highlight reel on Instagram, on Facebook, on MySpace for that matter. Yeah. So, and you can't like tag monster energy at knees, you know, so on yeah. and so forth. How did you, cause you, you kind of glossed over it a little bit. How did yeah. you get the attention of those sponsors to, to actually make that money while you're 16? Yeah. So basically I went out and filmed a video of myself skating, mm -hmm. like a three minute video and dude, VHS style. Right, like there's right. probably a lot of people listening. I don't know what that means. Basically put it on a VHS tape, made 40 different tapes. And I went through the magazines and sometimes a company, when they ran an ad, included their address at the bottom. So then I took their address, put it on, you know, my, my VHS tape and sent it out, attention team manager. And I sent 40 of them out. I crossed my fingers and mm. uh, I got no callbacks. And so I made another basically new video. I did the process again, sent another 40 out and then randomly three companies ended up calling me back, which is like, so insane. I can't right. even believe that happened. Right. You know, and that was basically the beginning of me meeting people inside the industry. I love that. And so, so I like think it, there's it, pros and cons to it, right? It's like yeah. social media has made it made the ability for you to connect with brands much easier. Right. But because it, it gave you access, it also made it more competitive. It's di diluted, right? Yeah. So for me, it was like, dude, to go through the work of making all those tapes and randomly sending them out, I don't think many kids did that. But then the also shot in the dark for some random person to pick it up and watch it. Yeah, it worked out. Right. And yeah, I think you're so right. Because 
as much as people say, well, the accessibility is there now because everyone has the accessibility. It's so overcrowded. Yes. Then I think it goes back to like, you got to take your shot somewhere. If I didn't DM you two nights, three nights ago, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. So it's like, you got to make the, you got to take the opportunity. I think that that's where the now is a little bit easier because you have such an easy way to get to more people. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And so you, you finally get sponsors' attentions, but that doesn't necessarily mean you turn pro. When was it that you actually like turned pro? Uh, I turned pro God, right around like 2002, I think. 2001, 2002. So basically prior to that, I, was, I, was, I had sponsors that was trying to basically market myself. I had photos in the magazines, et cetera. I wasn't pro. What it basically means to be pro is that your board sponsor is going to start selling boards with your name on it. Uh, and so my career was already starting as an mm-hmm. amateur, but it clicked over uh, and I became pro like right around 2002. What was, what were those first few years or was it more like, we're still out here skateboarding and it's not, I'm not making millions of dollars. Like everyone maybe think I'm doing. Um, yes. I wasn't really making any money, uh, but it was cool because <laughs> I was traveling. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was, I mean, dude, for me, it was just like, I just, it was something so new. Like I had never like traveled the world. So seeing different people, different cultures was, it's really cool, right? Uh, Changed my perspective. Like all I knew was my little town. Uh, And then the other thing too is like, you're, you're like experiencing all of these things happening, which is kind of surreal as well. It's like, I'm traveling with like my childhood idols, you know, and then I'm skating like famous spots in like Germany and Italy. And it was, it was like, it, it didn't feel real, I guess is the best way to say it. It was just like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. And so how much money were you making in those first years? You, you said like you weren't making like real money. How much, how much it, were you making roughly? As a yeah. Yeah. So my, my first year I was making, I think like $900 a month, $850 a month. Um, so I didn't even, I don't even think I had to pay taxes on that. Uh, and then the second year I was making, <laughs> it was a, it was a early 2000s Venmo. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I started making my second year is about like 2000 bucks a month, $2,500 a month. And then mm. I got to the point where I started making mm. like 50 grand a year. Um, and I think I broke, I think I started making a hundred thousand dollars a year after I had been pro for. Oh man, probably about six years or something like that. Five years, five and a half years. Okay. So, so kind of like to put that in perspective, right? Like you're making all this, I, I'll say all this money because at that age, it was six a lot. figures is a lot of money. It was a right? lot of money. At that like age, to anyone's, totally. I mean, yeah. I mean like, yeah, yeah. I th- like, I think anyone sitting here, I mean, I'm 23. If I could sit here and say I'm making six figures, I'd be pretty happy with my life. Right. How hard is it? to be sitting there barely, barely legal to drink booze, making all this money while your peers are just graduating college and you know you're making more than them. But to actually say like, I need to start saving this type of money. Well, it, it's, a, it's a bittersweet because like for, for me, like I knew my career wasn't gonna last long and I didn't know when it was gonna end. So it was like, yeah, I'm making like, you know, pretty good money, uh, you know, I don't get to keep all that money as being taxed, but right. uh, I might only make this money for six years. And then what, then I go back. I thought I was like, so scared about what was next. And so I just never looked at it as I was making a lot of money. 
I was just like, I'm making good money as a kid, but when you look at the long run of my life and this moment, I don't know if it's going to be that crazy. Where did you find the discipline to start saving that money at such an early age? Because I think that's the biggest hurdle that our generation is struggling with, or at least kids my age are struggling with. Like, I'm making pretty good money now, but I really need to start saving it. Yeah. So I had somebody come into my life that uh, basically became my uh, mentor uh, and my financial advisor at a time where I shouldn't have had a financial advisor. Like, I, like dude, I was making, you know, what, 25 grand a year? That's not right. enough for a financial advisor. <laughs> right. uh, and so it, it's kind of two part. One, the discipline was created in my perspective because of skateboarding. Skateboarding is so hard. And it takes so much delayed gratification and you really have to be uh, kind of obsessive to be good at it, right? And so I felt like I had a discipline created with skateboarding. I just didn't understand finance. But when I had somebody come into my life and basically explain to me, hey, dude, yeah, you're making like okay money right now, but this money isn't always going to be here. And what I want to do is help you get to a point where you become financially free. I had no idea what that meant. What does that mean? Like I'm rich? I mean, he was like, this is how simple it was. No, when you start investing, you start earning interest on your money. So your money makes you money, right? And he's like, so you can right. get to a point where the amount of interest or the amount of money you're making pays for your lifestyle. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Yes, I want that. I want all of that. What do we do? You know, and he's like, okay, look, well, you don't make that much money. So I need you to live off basically as small of amount as possible. And I was like, okay, like what? And he goes, I'll let you decide, but as small as possible. And so me being a skater, I got that. I'm Mm -hmm. living like I am broke, dead broke, right? And so I have two years of living off of, you know, 20% of my salary and he hits me with this one. Hey dude. So this is what's going to happen. You're going to start making more money. Your friends are going to start making more money and you're going to feel this kind of need or desire to compete with your friends, to, to start spending more and increase your lifestyle. That is what we're going to stay away from, right? No lifestyle inflation. I need you to maintain this discipline because the more money you make, if you stay on this lifestyle, that gives us more dollars to put into assets to achieve this goal that we talked about, interest paying for lifestyle. And so I was just head down because I was fearful of life after skateboarding. Right. And dude, I, I went 10 years of living like I was making no money just to maximize what I could invest into. Were you, would you say your other skating peers were doing the same thing or like, no. how did you know? Okay. No. No, no, my friend. So basically to kind of tell you where that two years in, he told me about lifestyle inflation, right? It's because I was driving a 94 civic hatchback that I paid $2,000 for. Right. And I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm skating. We pull up to the skate spot, two of my friends in the same week, one bought like an S class S 550 Mercedes. Right. Mm-hmm. And skaters, it was like, wait, what the hell is, are you kidding me? Right. And the other one bought a G wagon and I'm going, <laughs> what are you guys doing? Right. And they looked at me and went, what are you doing dog? Like, I know you're making money. Like, why are you driving that thing? Right. And so I called my mentor, Randy, Hey dog. Uh, so can I buy a nicer car? Like all my friends are doing it. 
Right. And that's when he hit me with, well, what's your goal? Is your goal to buy nice things now or is your goal to become financially free? And so he put the goal in front of my face and then he talked about lifestyle inflation. Maintain your lifestyle and earn more money. That gives us a quicker ability to achieve financial freedom. Okay, I'm good. So no, I was like, I was, there weren't a lot like me. But I mean, damn, that G-Wagon must have a lot of storage for those skateboards though, yeah? You know what I'm saying? It was like, and, and the other thing too, like we didn't have those type of cars. So it was just like, right. what the hell is happening? Yeah. You're pulling up to NFL practices looking better than half the play. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So over the years though, as a pro skater, you held contracts with companies like DC Shoes, GoPro, Alien Workshops. Over your tenure, we talked a little bit about it. You had over a hundred signature skateboards, seven pro model shoes. Was it during this like creative process now that instead of like, okay, I'm, I know how to save money. I know how to do this financially. I want to have this more entrepreneurial bug. Is that where you would say you caught that sort of entrepreneurial bug for this? Um, well, it started early. I just didn't realize it was a thing. Like, I, you know, now that I look back and I've done enough, enough interviews where it's like, even to think, how could I get sponsors to give me free stuff, take that free stuff, sell it to my friends so I have money? Like, there's something entrepreneurial in that. I just... I, I I wasn't even thinking on that radar. When I met my right. mentor, Randy, it was all about I'm skateboarding and I'm going to be disciplined with my saving and investing, right? And there mm-hmm. was no entrepreneurial anything there. Right. Uh, it all started when I got my first shoe and, you know, I'm introduced or they basically tell me I'm going to get a shoe. I'm like, all right, cool. So what do we do? Well, we have to design it. So I start working with designers and then I have to sell the shoe. So I start learning marketing, how to communicate a message And then I started noticing that the more shoes I sell, the more money I make. And I loved that process. I really, really liked it. And I just found myself wanting to be more involved with the company who was sponsoring me. And so I basically set up a meeting with them, with the president of the company. I was like, hey, dude, so I want to be more than a skater. I want to help design shoes. I want to help build out the team. Like, I'm really interested in this stuff. And he looked at me and he's like, dude, you're crazy. (laughs) just go back to skateboarding. Like, what are you talking about? Right. And so I realized that like something was changing in myself. I didn't understand entrepreneur yet. I was just like, something's happening here. Mm -hmm. I end up quitting the company because I wanted more. I start working with Etnies, which you bought their shoes. And Etnies gave me the opportunity to ride for them and help basically uh, switch up their program, work on shoe design, switch up the team, uh, be more involved in, Uh, kind of building the brand. And so I was really excited about that. In that process, I learned really quickly that I didn't know how to work with people. And my leadership skills were basically non-existent. And so I'm going in there basically talking down to everybody like I'm Steve Jobs and like I'm this authoritative person, ridiculous. And I'm getting like pushback from it, right? And my immature, you know- (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And (laughs) I was immature and didn't understand it. And I took that as these guys will never listen to a skater because I'm just a skater and this is not my company. And so in my brain, it was like, I need to go start my own company. What was really going on was I had no idea how to talk to people, (laughs) you know, Uh, but that was the beginning of me going, I need to do my own thing. Is that kind of the correlation between entrepreneurship and skateboarding? Like, with skateboarding, it is such an individual sport. 
like I swam, I swam in college. That's an individual sport. There is some team aspect to it, but skateboarding, you are your, you are your brand. You are, you know, one with your board and that's it. Do you think that's kind of the correlation between skateboarding and being an entrepreneur and being like, I want to start this, what I'm doing from the ground up, just like I did skateboarding. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's that component. It's all about you making it happen. When you start getting into like, you know, creating video parts, Dude, it's all you. It's you trying to think of the tricks you want to do. It's you thinking of where you want to do uh, the trick, the music behind it. You're you're going through this like process of coming up with it in your head, having to call the filmers, the photographers, put it together, and then you end up seeing the finished product. Uh, so I, I think there is something very entrepreneurial about skateboarding. The challenge challenge is to be a successful entrepreneur. You have to understand how to build a team and skaters it's very individual. So my, my, what I really had to learn was how to work with people because I was always the mentality of I'll make it happen. I'll do it. I'll, I'll it doesn't matter if you, I'm going to make it happen. And that mentality helps, but it won't help you build a successful business. If you don't have people along with you to do it. Yeah. So perfect transition. It's like you, it's like, I asked you these questions before we even started talking, but one of your biggest entrepreneurial successes uh, was the team that you built out with St. Archer Brewing with your buddy Josh Landon? What was that? Can you kind of take us through that roller coaster ride from you guys creating the idea to start a brewing company post skating to what later became the acquisition from Miller Coors, their first craft brewery acquisition? Um, okay, so St. Archer happened mid skating. I was, I was still, I still had a skate career when we were doing St. Archer, um, which actually was I'm very thankful for because it forced me to learn uh, not only time management, but the importance of uh, finding people to do things to uh, finding people to, to cover time in a sense for you. Um, so that was a huge blessing. Basically it was me, my friend, Josh, and my friend, Paul. Uh, we had no business experience, but we understood how to market product and create brand. And in skateboarding, you know, all of the skateboards are made by the same wood manufacturer. They're all the same. But kids think that a girl board is better than a plan B board, right? And so we grow up in this, this industry that is so hyper-competitive when it comes to marketing and storytelling that uh, we know how to build brands. And so when it came to beer, I was with Josh and Josh came up with the idea like we should do a craft brewery. And we were like, hell yeah, we should totally do a craft beer brewery only because it had never been done in our industry. That was like the, the thought behind it. As we started doing research, we started realizing that there weren't any brands really being built in the craft beer space. It was all right. product driven. And so we saw an opportunity to take what me, Josh, and Paul really understood in, in our, Paul and my industry, which was skate, Josh's industry was surf and apply that to beer where we were selling something beyond the beer and, uh, and it, and it worked. It was, it was the perfect time for it. Uh, it, it was an exciting run, but dude, it was a lot of learning for us. Yeah. Like how, like how, how do you even go from skateboarding to beer making? So how does that, how does that jump even work? Yeah. So, uh, one, my mentor, uh, who, uh, taught me all about money and financing. He's the one that basically helped us start everything. He helped us do the business plan. We had to raise money. He taught us how to raise money. Uh, 
Uh, and then we had to go find people that knew what they were doing. We had to go find a head brewer. We had to find a sales guy. We had to find a CFO. Uh, and the hard part about moving into an industry that you don't know is you don't know who in that industry is good yet. So for us, like our original team that we launched the company with, like a year later, none of that team was there anymore. Right. Right. And so let's fast forward a little bit to the acquisition with Miller Coors. What was that process like for you having, you know, made a very successful pro skating career and made your, made, made some good dough there, but now we're talking like multi-million dollar deal with a gigantic brewing company. Was it kind of like a surreal moment for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was trippy. Like, you know, we started, <laughs> we, we started working on the deal. I mean, it, it was months in the making and like, you know, the whole time I'm just telling me, like telling myself, don't get excited. It's not done. Don't get excited. Uh, finally, the deal gets done. And uh, it's still, I still didn't like get my hopes up. And then all of a sudden the wire hits, you know, right. and it was like, it was a very different feeling than I was expecting. I, I thought like, you know, I was going to get some money like this and go, I did it. Let's go. You know, yeah. Uh, for me, it was like, oh no, like now you better not mess this up. It was like a whole new type of responsibility. Uh, one, two, I almost didn't know how to act anymore. That, that was, I think the weird thing is the sale was so public mm. that like everyone in our industry knew it happened. Right. And so I went through this like, oh crap, now everybody knows that I make money. Uh, are they going to treat me different? Am I supposed to, you know, there was a little bit of insecurity that went with it as well in the beginning. Do you like, as a, as a guy who's very public about not spending a lot of money on material things, when that, when that wire hits of a multi-million dollar check to your name, how, like, did you have any sort of itch to be like, all right, let's go get that Rolex or that car or what, See, what have you. I'll tell you something funny. Uh, and this is the true blessing of having somebody come into my life uh, and really help me with this things with these things. When you have the discipline already created, nothing changes when you start seeing more success. And because I had already gone 15 years of living very, very below my means and feeling grateful for what I had was still the desire to, you know, achieve more. Uh, when the St. Archer money came in, it, it, it's like nothing had happened. It, it, I, I didn't even have to struggle with it because the discipline was already created. And what ended up happening is six months after we sold the company, my wife goes, do you think we should have celebrated at all? And I was like, I mean, I don't know. Like, should we have? And she says, <laughs> we should probably at least go get dinner. <laughs> and like, I was like, okay. So basically my wife and I went to this restaurant, Mastro's. So we go to Mastro's, uh, you know, we do like the filet and, you know, nice bottle of wine. We spent like 300 bucks, something like that. Right. Uh, a, a and so like, bucket, that, you know, so that, that was like, that was our, we did it. And I even right. like the, the uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the server comes up and he's like, oh, are you guys celebrating something tonight? And we were like, well, yeah, we sold a business. And he was like, and you're just getting this bottle of wine? Why aren't you, <laughs> you right, know? Right, and right. so uh, 
so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for Randy coming to my life and, and really helping me build that discipline first. But there was a massive change on my investing strategy, just not on my lifestyle and spending. I like that. I, I, that's so important because at the end of the day, a huge invest, a huge surplus of money like that is going to only make more when you start yeah. investing it smartly, you know, in, yeah. in, in a smart way. So yeah. it's always good to talk about the wins because we can learn something from them. We could take something from them, but in the same turn, especially in entrepreneurship, there are lessons to be learned in losses. What would you say is your biggest entrepreneurial failure and what did you learn from it? question my biggest failure oh man I, I mean i've had a lot i've had a lot of companies that didn't work um what is my biggest failure from an entrepreneur from an entrepreneur i think my biggest failure uh is a company that i, I don't i'm not going to say the name of the company no no yeah uh, <laughs> but uh when you're an entrepreneur, you, you have this idea that you can do anything and you also see opportunity everywhere and think you can participate in it all. Uh, mm. and I had started a company where I saw an opportunity. Uh, I felt like I could do it and I didn't have the resources to do that company and everything I was doing at that time. And I didn't put the attention towards it. Uh, the time, the energy, and it just, it failed. It just didn't work. Uh, it was somewhat of an investment that I lost the money on. Uh, it was more just the, it, it doesn't feel good to, to do something and it not work. And this happened after St. Archer. So it was like uh, to have a success and right. then hit like a fail. It was like, what the, you know, but it, it, but it was, a, it was a really good learning moment for me. Um, and then as far as like the investing stuff goes, I've had investments that didn't work out as, as well. Um, and so something I started doing actually, uh, I started writing down all of the reasons why I'm doing something before I do it. Right. And so if something is either successful or it fails, I then go back and look at all of the reasons why I did it so that I could see if I made any mistakes or if my decision-making was accurate and something that we just was unseen happened. Uh, and I tried to do it with wins as well. Cause sometimes when you do well, you think you nailed it all and it was all perfect where it wasn't. Mm. Uh, and so, I mean, dude, whenever you go through moments of failure, it's actually, you know, we all know this where you learn the most. So uh, yeah, that, that, that would definitely be my testimony. I failed and I've definitely learned from those failures. So with that company, uh, I've learned that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all the way. And if I can't do it, I have to put, I have to put people in place to do it all the way as well. I love that. I love that. So let's switch gears here a little bit to talk a little okay. bit about uh, common capital. Like what, where was the idea to, to start your own investment firm or start your own investment fund to do and get started with commune capital? So the idea came when my career ended and uh, I had become one of a very, very small amount of people who had achieved financial freedom. The thing that Randy talked about, what's our goal? I'd actually accomplished it. And uh, right. it was really, it was a really cool feeling. Uh, it was also a really crappy feeling as well uh, because most of my friends weren't going through that same experience. And when I started thinking back to why I was in this position 
and others weren't. Uh, I, I brought it all the way back to Randy, my mentor. And, you know, I looked at him and went, I had somebody that taught me, educated me and empowered me. And he also gave me opportunity. All of the real estate that I was participating with in storage and lending, that was all from him. He ran a private equity fund. And so uh, my first idea was I want to replicate what he did in my life to, for all of my friends inside of skateboarding. And so uh, that was the birth of the idea. And then when I looked back at, you know, what I always felt the most, most comfortable in investing, that was passively, meaning I wasn't the one actually doing the work. Right. It was real estate. R real estate is, is one of those assets that, you know, I just love. I love that I get to see cash flow from it. I love that it's a hard asset. I love that you can see appreciation. I love the tax efficiency. It was to me, if I'm going to put money as a pro skateboarder and put it in an investment and I want to count on that money being there when my career ends, uh, not only did I feel good about real estate, but real estate worked for me as well. Um, now, that's not to say all real estate will do that because you can do real estate wrong. Uh, but my experience was phenomenal with it. So when I came up with the idea, I wanted it to be education and empowerment and then opportunity that people can partner with us uh, on the deals that we had money in. And so, like, I think to your point, you've been doing it for some time, but I think it still kind of comes off as like a daunting project or like a, uh, you know, just a, a daunting investment rather than like, I downloaded Robinhood. That was free. I have 50 bucks. Let's put it all into Tesla. Like how yeah. does someone get started in real estate investing? Okay. So it, you nailed it. Uh, there, as far as bearer to entry, real estate has a high bear to entry, unless you're going to go at like public REITs mm. uh, to, to invest in private real estate, you have to have a lot of money. It, mm. it, you can't have $500 and get into real estate, right? But there's something that a lot of people miss. And this is what I was really fortunate about. We assume that if you're going to participate in real estate, you have to be the landlord. You have to find the deal. You are the active investor, right? That is not the case. My, all of my investing in real estate while I was a pro skateboarder was passively, mm -hmm. meaning I was, in, I was investing in a group. That group was going out and finding properties, doing the renovation or rehab, putting management in place. And then basically I was getting paid off my money being in the deals. Uh, and so when it comes to how does everybody get started, you do have to get to a point where you have a certain amount of money to invest in, right? It's an alternative. Typically, that's not done until you get to a certain investing stage. Right. But you don't have to go actively invest. You don't have to be the landlord. You can find companies and invest passively with them. And then your other opportunity would be uh, public REITs, where you get liquidity, you don't have the big bear entry, and it is accessible like uh, – you know, maybe certain mutual funds that you're talking about that you could participate in through uh, one of these digital brokerages. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I just think it's it's something that hasn't been commercialized enough to, to, in a sense that like people know about it as much as they do the stock market or Robin yeah. Hood or what have you. So I think like yeah. even just having some basic knowledge about this kind of stuff and having these types of conversations. I think I commented on your Instagram tonight, like we need to make these conversations cooler. And, yeah. and I'm not saying like the people that are talking about it need to make it cooler. I think like just being able to sit down with your buddies and talk about this kind of stuff 
and make it the cool thing to talk about is important. That's right. That's right. That's totally, totally with you there. I'm on board. So like, what's, what's the big picture for commune? Like what's the 10 year goal down the line from here? From an impact standpoint or a business standpoint? Yes. This is a podcast. So you'll have to answer both. <laughs> okay. Um, from an impact standpoint, uh, and I don't have a, a number on it, but I want to help as many people achieve financial freedom as possible. That, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, and so we have a lot of athletes involved, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people in sales. Um, I mean, dude, right now, if I could, if I could help a thousand people achieve financial freedom, oh, big win. Ten years, let's just put it at five thousand. I don't know, five thousand people achieve financial freedom in ten years. Uh, from a business standpoint, uh, we have a goal of well, our goal is to be managing a billion dollars of assets under management in five. I think we have a shot at, if we don't change anything, we just stay the course, we'll do it in 10. Uh, but that is, that is our five-year goal. I love it. I we got some, yeah. we got some, we got some hard numbers here. We got to get those going. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So let's shift to some topics that are sh- extremely hot right now. Uh, stock okay. market investing, whether it's, it's day trading or the retail traders as they've been deemed long-term investors or someone that literally just downloaded Robinhood yesterday. Uh, for me personally, I think a lot of it of what's going on is this the the quote unquote free money that we're getting from the government, and and we want to make people you know like we, a lot of people have more time on their hands to to put their hands in the market, see what's going on there, and then we have the third party in this is all the social media giants telling people where to put their money. For uh-huh. someone who's been doing this for a long time, is this like anything you've ever seen before? I've never seen anything like this. This is crazy. Crazy. Well, you know what? I got to take a step back. I have seen this before. Okay. I've never seen this before as far as how social media can influence people to make bad decisions when it comes to investing. That part's new. What I have seen before is how excited people get when there's a bubble about to burst. What I saw in 2007 was this in real estate. When I started seeing everybody have multiple homes, everybody, every random person. If you saw the uh, big short, was it big short? Is that what it was? Big short. When you have, yeah, yep, yep. No offense. When you have the stripper talking about owning five homes because she bought a home and had so much equity right away that she's able to pull out equity and buy another and another and another, uh, that's a bad sign. And you're seeing that right now. It, it, the amount of people that are, turned up and just high off investing, uh, that's a little bit scary. So uh, I think there are some similarities, but um, there's something new at play with this, with the, with technology and, and the accessibility that you kind of talked about. It is so easy for everyone to now invest their own money. And so when you add a cool platform with social mm-hmm. media and a younger generation, um, it can be very good and it can be very bad. Uh, and I think some of the stuff we've seen as of late, probably on the bad side. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think we'd be remiss not to talk about it. So could you maybe give the listeners of the podcast, if they've been living under a rock for the past two weeks, like a two minute rundown of this hold the line to the moon movement that's been going on with GameStop, Nokia, AMC, et cetera. 
Yeah. So, uh, so what, what you can do when you, when you buy stocks is you can buy expecting the stock to go up or you can short expecting it to go down. And a lot of these hedge funds and what we're seeing right now is they will short a company, uh, meaning they're betting on the company going in a bad direction. Yep. And so Reddit and this group, Wall Street Bets, mm-hmm. uh, they said, nah, we're going to find these hedge funds who are shorting these companies and we're going to buy the crap out of it so that the company goes in the opposite direction. And when it starts going up, simply put, the person shorting it is going to have to buy back their position and uh, and lose money, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was there were so many people that drove the price so high that the share price no longer reflected anywhere close to what the company was uh, performing at, right? And so if everybody's buying, 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 and the, and the numbers have no justification based off what the company is, and it's so high to the moon, well, <laughs> there's nowhere it can go but down. Right. And so uh, that's kind of what we saw. And then we saw a lot of influencers start hyping it up and you saw people get behind it. Uh, and it was very scary, at least from my perspective. Uh, but there's a, there's something interesting about it as well. There, there's there's multiple things at play. There's the the time and, and moment we're in. There's the accessibility to invest, and then there's really seeing people's uh, how would you say it inexperience in investing. Yeah, and the pain that's about to follow because of that. Yeah, and I mean, I makes sense. Did that make sense? Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. I mean, I think I think you could have presented that to a fifth grade class, and we, and we would have got it. I like, I, okay. but that's like to the that's the point that we need to have. Like, this isn't just I'm gonna put a thousand dollars into GameStop at fifteen dollars, and I know that the rest of the world's gonna jack it up to three hundred and eighty-five, and I'm gonna make all my money, and then I sell it. Like that to me, when they did that, like, good on you. You do what you want to do. You made your money, but when you go to play offense, someone's going to play defense. And in this, in this instance, the hedge funds and the people with way more money than all of us played defense. And did they make calls to Robin hood and do some things? Yes. Did they, did they have to do certain things in the market to cause it to kind of come back down? Yes. But I feel like when you go play with the big dogs, you got to be ready for them to bite back. Yeah. It's like the, the, what are the what's the common phrase smart money will always win um it's yeah it's an interesting one it's it's a it's actually a bigger conversation we could have probably spent the whole podcast talking yeah. about this one topic right but basically it, it's hard to see like like you heard people go this isn't about the money this isn't about the money this is about mm. exposing uh uh exposing well how did they phrase it exposing what hedge funds were doing and basically you know doing what they do to everyone else and manipulating the market and the fact they're doing this is exposing the corruption right mm. and so you have people like we're i don't even care I, we're not mm. in this to make money i'll lose all my money just to do this so you had mm. that movement happening mm-hmm. right the problem is it, what people will do is they'll take a movement that's going to spark a pain point 
and use that to make them money, right? So I don't know if this is what happened, but this was at least my perspective because this is what I would do if I was uh, trying to get rich off other people. Right. I would find a cause like this. The hedge funds are evil. The, the, the rich get richer. The poor don't. The little guy is losing. It's not fair. I would use that pain point that all of us feel to get people fired up about my movement, right? And then I would buy that stock when it's worth nothing. And then all of a sudden I would go in a frenzy. They're, they're out to get us. They're screwing us. It's not fair. We need to expose the corruption, get behind the movement. Now you have all of these people getting behind it, driving this price up to the moon, right? Yeah. And then I would sell it before everybody else experience it, before everybody else realized that everyone was going to lose their money. Right. And so it's hard to basically see through things like this and go, are they using a pain point and a movement for the few to get rich? Or were they really on this like we want to destroy all? Because we know this, dude. First one in and first one, they're going to make money. Yeah. First one's in and the first one's out are always the ones that you come know? out on top. So now you're seeing like people start GoFundMes because they lost their entire uh, savings. It, it, this is where it starts getting bad, right? And I made a reference to it that it's turned into a Ponzi scheme. And it was interesting seeing people's feedback. Uh, like a lot of the youth was like, you're, how much do the hedge funds pay you? You don't believe in free market, right? I, I, I want to make something really clear. I'm not saying the hedge funds are doing it right. I'm not on the side of the hedge fund. Right. I'm on the side of as many of us succeeding with our finances as possible, right? Agreed. And Agreed. so when you create something where it's only going to make money if people put more money into it, that is a Ponzi scheme. And that's exactly what we saw. And the second people turn from buyers to sellers, and because the price is not based on anything other than people buying, this shit comes crashing down, right? So uh, that was my two cents on it. Uh, and dude, it was split, man. Uh, a lot of the younger generation was like, you know, boomer, okay, boomer, get out of here. Go make yeah. your 8% mutual fund, oh the whole nine. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but I know, I, dude, I know where the story ends and we're starting to see it play out now. Exactly, exactly. So Mike, Mikey, I do have to ask, right? If, if I'm someone who just came across this podcast and I've, I'm like, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. What's the biggest takeaway as a listener? What's the easiest way to start saving money right now and get on that road to financial freedom? The easiest way is to remove your ability to not save. And so we talk about this, about paying yourself first. So what the typical cycle looks like is we make money, we spend our money, and then if we have anything left over, we save. You, you, you have to make your savings a priority and a bill. And so what we recommend is automating your savings right when your check hits your account. Mm -hmm. um, Kind of, if you look at the conventional way, it's 50, 30, 20. So 50% of your income is going to go for needs, things you absolutely have to pay for, or something really bad happens, rent or mortgage, food, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then wants would be, you know, lifestyle. And then 20% would go to your savings. So if you're following that model, your check hits your account, automatically 20% goes into your savings. And then out of that, there's a certain percentage that might go towards your emergency fund or cash reserves or your retirement plan, long-term goals, short-term goals, et cetera. So putting it as a priority, automating it so you don't have to think about it, and then, uh, and then just maintaining course discipline.
I love it. I, I, yeah, I think the the theme of this week's episode is discipline and, That's and right. having the ability to to really sit down and do it. So, Mikey, this has been an absolute blast. I really appreciate all the insight and all the tips that you gave us uh, on this week's episode. I do have one final question for you. We ask it for all of our guests, and I know I've hit you with some big ones today, but the last one here is, if you were to write your autobiography today, what would be the title of it and why? Oh, dang. That's a... That's a hard question. That's the general consensus we get. Right at the end, they're like, oh, we were having such a great time. And now I got to <laughs> think a lot more. Oh, it's a phenomenal question. The title would be... Huh. I know this is a title of a book, but this is the title that keeps coming to my mind is A Purpose Driven Life. Uh the title would have something to do with purpose, the importance of purpose, purpose-driven life, I think nails it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why that would be the title would be because what I experienced is without knowing your purpose, you can never truly live the life that you were put here to live. And so what is the point if you're not doing the thing you're meant to do? And, and that's kind of been my, my experience for the last 38 years. That's awesome. That is, a, that is a great, great answer to the question. And I can't wait for you to get started writing that book. So if you just start doing that, then we'll all be much better off, right? My man, <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> awesome, Mikey. Well, thank you again so, so much. As always, keep doing you and we'll definitely stay in touch. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. So that does it for another great interview. Thank you again, Mikey Taylor, for coming on this week's show and just spitting straight knowledge and insight to what the heck is going on in the world and how can we navigate through all of this and save some money, truthfully. I mean, besides the incredible upbringing from uh, you know a skateboarding fan to a professional skateboarder, then taking those correct steps in saving that money to get to that financial freedom a really great story, great interview. If you didn't get anything from this episode, I encourage you to go back and listen again because I think a lot of great things can take can be taken from this week's episode. Um, be sure to go follow Mikey on Instagram at Mikey Taylor. I'll leave some links of Mikey below in the description of this week's podcast. Please follow us on Instagram as well to find some video highlights from the interviews and bonus content as well. And uh, if you like what you're listening to, if you like the episodes, if you're new here, welcome. If you've been sticking around for the past several months, thank you so much. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That gets us uh, in front of some more eyeballs and more ears uh, on Apple Podcasts and other podcasting apps. So we're just trying to grow the show, man. This has been a really fun experience for me, getting to connect with all these incredible individuals and learning their stories. Because again, at the end of the day, I'm just a normal guy with a lazy eye, and this is truthfully an eye-opening experience for me. So thank you guys so much, and I will see you all next week.